Time for the 86th quack cast. This one is called The Species in the Feces. I really should have been a poet, don't you know it? However, I'm going to start out this time before we get on to stool transplants and their fellow travelers with some email. No, not one of the usual rants about how I am a tool of the medical industrial complex, but an interesting one nonetheless. This is a letter from a pediatrician who works in rural Uganda, and it's in reference to my podcast, Without Borders. Quote, I'm a pediatrician working in rural, and I mean rural Uganda. I've been here full time for about two years now, on and off for four, dot, dot, dot. In my region of Uganda, I'm one of four pediatricians. My three colleagues are two hours away in Mabale, the nearest big city to us, and otherwise I'm alone in the eastern territories. We find the doctor-to-patient ratio you mentioned applies more to the bigger cities. The situation is exponentially more critical in the far-flung regions, the forgotten districts, I call them, of the country. For the past two years, I have managed and operated two grassroots NGO clinics and my husband and I have adopted a MacGyver medicine approach to make every single resource, every single cent, and every single healthcare worker as effective as possible. Our districts have some of the poorest and worst served areas in the country, and to compound the problem of poor education, rampant infectious diseases, including an HIV AIDS prevalence much worse than the national average, the awful infrastructure in education and public services, we're lucky if we see a small portion of the $1.35 per capita you mentioned Uganda spends on health care. In a nutshell, every single cent matters and literally determines the difference between life and death. The studies you reviewed in Without Borders cast are sickening. I see time and again groups of do-gooders from around the globe popping up into countries like Uganda to help but who conveniently might just get some of the data while they're at it. Do they consult the people they want to study? Maybe. Do they get the permission from the country's IRB equivalents for ethical research protocols? Probably not. Although I bet the U.S. institution backing them is on board and have never mentioned the need to consult the in-country ethics boards. Do they realize how far their money could go if used prudently? Definitely not. Otherwise, I can't fathom that anyone would go forward with the severe waste of resources I see. As I said, those of us in these countries who see the true state of health know that not a penny can go to waste. But millions of pennies go pouring down the drains, or bills lit on fire, as you said, on those research projects. The acupuncture study in Uganda was a perfect example of this. Hearing you speak about it made me want to scream. Pretty sure I did, and scare the chickens. There is no wiggle room for this. We cannot allow independent groups or bad science to dictate how money is spent in areas where one dollar may make the difference between a person's life or death. Sometimes you literally have one opportunity to reach people. They may visit you or participate in your study for one healthcare encounter in a decade. How can you waste that opportunity by not using it to provide the things we know will help them? Deworming, vaccinations, multivitamin supplements, HIV education, education. 
We argue to put the money instead towards training healthcare workers to go into their communities and educate about basic hygiene, vaccinations, nutrition, and other health topics. As you mentioned multiple times, there are not many interventions with no possible or tangible harm done, but education sure comes close. I've now worked with two groups of 16 community volunteers, people from the communities in which I've worked, who we trained in basic education following international and Ministry of Health guidelines. Their educational work alone has made a big cut out of the delayed wound care, diarrhea outbreaks, and malaria cases in the community. We attribute a rise in family planning use to their work. Our patient volumes at the clinics in the areas have increased and people seem to understand basic health care better. How much did it cost to train these people? About $200 total. Imagine putting all that acupuncture money towards widespread community health worker training in Nepal, Uganda, Nicaragua, and Haiti. This is what keeps me fighting in international health care and why I get so damn pissed off when I hear about studies like what you discussed. Thank you so much for addressing this tragic ethical issue in your podcast. And then they go on to say nice things about me. All well deserved, no doubt, but not the nice things I can say about them. Now, it is not infrequent for me to ask for donations. Don't get me wrong, I like money. As the Beatles said, money don't get everything it's true, but what it don't get, I can't use. Now give me money. Yeah, that's what I want. However, it occurs to me that there are people who could use a dollar more than I could. Even at my worst, my life has been better than that of 99.99% of the people on the planet and will probably continue to be so. So if you're bored, why not send money instead of to me, instead donate some money to Ugandan healthcare. How might you do that, you would ask? Well, I asked Dr. Lisa Umphrey, who wrote me the letter, and her husband, Douglas De Silva, if they could recommend some charities that would put their money and your money to good use. The links will, of course, be on the website, but, but I will mention them here. There is the partnership Uganda and the AAH at www.aah.com h-u-g-a-n-d-a dot org and www.partnershipuganda.inc.org p-a-r-t-n-e-r-s-h-i-p-u-g-a-n-d-a-i-n-c dot o-r-g and click the support tab. And don't forget, sending money to Uganda doesn't mean you can't send me money as well. Give me money, yeah. That's what I want. Now we'll move on to the species in the feces the 86th podcast, which you so definitely want to hear. But I have to admit, after reading the letter from Uganda, seems so unimportant. I do not understand the interest many appear to have in their bowels, and the movement thereof. But then, I pay little attention to my own bodily functions, as long as they are functioning within reasonable parameters. And now that I'm in my 50s, I tell you, reasonable is increasingly flexible. The elderly, of which I'm soon to be a part, seem to obsess about their bowels. My theory is that since they have lost taste and smell and hearing and, and are often alone with little human contact, that the only good physical joy they have left is a good bowel movement. And when it is compromised, they are understandably upset. 
still, the concepts of colonics for detoxification strike me as more humorous than repellent, despite the lack of efficacy in documented complications of the procedure. Under normal circumstances, when it comes to the colon, it is probably better to be removing substances than to be introducing them. I do not pretend to be an expert in the human microbiome, that complex ecosystem of bacteria and other organisms that are in and on us. It is often of interest, but it usually does not directly concern the daily application of infectious diseases. I spend most of my days trying to kill the odd pathogen, most of whom are not usually part of the human bacterial ecosystem. There are thousands of species in and on us, and we can only grow a small fraction of them in the clinical microbiology lab. There are an estimated 10 to 100 times more cells in you and on you than there are cells of you. Take your colon, please. It has been estimated that the cumulative human lower intestinal microbiota contains at least 1,800 genera and 15,000 to 36,000, depending on a conservative versus liberal classification. Now, I tend to think that the conservative approach is associated with a larger quantity of lower intestinal material, but that's me. You may think you are hot stuff, but really, you are only sentient transport media for feeding bacteria. An unfortunate side effect of antibiotics is the wiping out of large swaths of the normal flora in and on us. Early in my career, it was taught that the benefits of the microbiome were simple. Competition for adherence sites and nutrition with a little vitamin K production thrown in for good measure. It turns out that the interactions of the microbiome and the human is much more complex than suspected. There is probably a core microbiome we all share. There's a certain subset of bacteria that all humans have, but the diversity of bacterial flora is greater than the similarities. At a national meeting last year, I attended some lectures on the microbiome, and the two most interesting factoids from my notes were that the microbiomes are more similar in people who are related. My microbiome resembles that of my parents and children more than that of my wife. And even more interesting is the microbiology found on the left upper canine tooth resembles the right upper canine tooth, not the tooth below it, not the tooth next to it. Now, I have to admit, I went looking on the PubMeds for the references to confirm these two factoids and couldn't find them, but it was in my notes, and I take perfect notes. Not. Each tooth, however, is a Galapagosian island of separate and sometimes parallel evolution. I think that's really cool. I mess with the microbiome of others on a daily basis, wiping out billions of bacteria and upsetting the human ecology. Not that I have much choice. Most of the patients I see would likely die from their infection without antibiotics, although if there is karma for causing the deaths of other creatures, Given the huge number of microbial deaths for which I am responsible, I am destined to come back in the next life as a rabbit in a syphilis laboratory. What little data exists suggests that the bacterial flora declines dramatically with antibiotics and is slow to recover, often taking months to return to pre-antibiotic diversity. Each course of antibiotics is, 
to the bowel bacteria, almost a KT extension. Eh, boy, I can't even say that word. A KT extinction event, i.e. getting hit by an asteroid. There would be a less prolonged effect if we were more like mice and were corprophagic, but eating poo is not high on the human consumption list. Except, of course, for those of us that love hot dogs. The best and most reliable effect of messing with the bowel flora is diarrhea, which comes in two flavors, chocolate and vanilla, antibiotic-associated and clostridial diarrhea. Some antibiotics, like oral amoxicillin clavulanate, also known as Augmentin, for those of you who are true tools of the medical industrial complex, are arguably better, arguably, arguably, arguably better than most laxatives at cleaning out the gastrointestinal tract. You think it's hard doing these podcasts? It's actually quite exhausting to sit here and do this. I recently heard an interview with Neil Gaiman, and he was talking about how brain dead he was after five hours of reading his books allowed for audible books i just finished stardust great book but it is very tiring doing this so let's go back to the beginning shall we some antibiotics like oral amoxicillin clavulanate also known as augmentin are arguably better than most laxatives at cleaning out the gastrointestinal tract and antibiotic associated diarrhea leads to discomfiture and an increased cost of hospitalization the upside of diarrhea of course is you can always get more reading done and with augmenting, you might as well get out your copy of War and Peace. Probiotics are useful in prevention of antibiotic-associated diarrhea, supported by reasonable studies in the literature. In my institutions, we instituted... I guess you institute in institutions, don't you? In my institutions, we instituted yogurt for all our patients on antibiotics, and our testing for causes of diarrhea fell by half a reasonable surrogate that the product was effective. I recommend the yogurt be used over probiotic pills if possible, despite how unpleasant yogurt can be. Yogurt has the advantage of a known quantity and distribution of bacteria, since its production is somewhat more overseen by regulatory agency. I suggest yogurt that has a more diverse and the higher quantities of bacteria I like to refer to it as the yogurt closest to stool, a slogan not likely to be used by Dannon anytime soon. Activa, the yogurt that most resembles poo. Probiotic pills are problematic since their contents are not regulated and the organisms in probiotic pills can be dead or the species of bacteria are other than what is listed on the label. I talked about this at length on my probiotic podcast. It is, however, wrong to consider organisms in probiotics as good bacteria. They are often not part of the normal flora, and they can incite an inflammatory response and, in extremely rare circumstances, invade the bloodstream. I've seen a couple in my career. It is interesting, but not surprising, that probiotics can prevent upper respiratory tract infections in children. Quote, Regarding the potential mechanisms through which the reductions in respiratory symptoms and antibiotic usage could be explained, an immune-enhancing effect is likely explanation, because numerous studies with various probiotic bacteria have demonstrated their ability to modulate immune responses through interactions with toll-like receptors, end quote. As I have mentioned before, 
Immune enhancing is what us ID docs call an inflammatory response, which, if activated in advance of a pathogen, primes the immune system against subsequent infections. If you expose an immune cell to bug A, it's ready when it has to battle bug B. The inflammatory response, however, long-term is bad. Being associated short-term with increased vascular events, stroke, heart attack, and pulmonary embolism, and long-term, perhaps, with vascular disease. Being immune-enhanced may, for example, prevent tuberculosis at the price of the metabolic syndrome. As far as I can tell, the immune system is best left alone if you are not under acute microbial attack. Bacteria are neither good nor bad, but more or less likely to be pathogenic. Some are actually collaborators with the enemy, aiding and abetting pathogens in their invasion. The normal flora, the so-called good bacteria, may enhance infections from polio, some worms, and other bacteria. Not a surprise, for even as we were evolving in tandem with our bacterial flora, our pathogens were certainly evolving along with us and our microbiome. And remember, even good bacteria would be more than happy to consume you if given half an opportunity, which they will someday. And as would some of our pets, as I think about it. The utility of probiotics in the prevention and treatment of C. difficile is problematic, and the literature can be read either way. I tend to think of the glass as half full of stool and is of little utility. It is a problem that C. difficile can be difficult to treat with antibiotics and has a high relapse rate, 10 to 20% each time you get a course of therapy. Some patients go through multiple courses of different antibiotics without resolution of their disease and each antibiotic is more expensive than the last. The newest agent for C. difficile, phydoxamycin, has set a new record for price gouging with a 10-day course costing $2,800. Yep, $2,800. That is a lot of money. That's a MacBook. That's a MacBook Pro. You get a MacBook Pro for the cost of a treatment of diarrhea. The best therapy, best being the highest cure rate, for Clostridium difficile is the stool transplant. And I get pukey just talking about it. The stool of a spouse, although it really should be that of the parents or children, is pureed, then given down either a nasogastric tube or as an enema. Efficacy is almost 100%. There are worries about disease transfer as some infections are spread by the ever-so-wonderful fecal-oral route. But although it may not be the case with the microbiome, when it comes to pathogens, most spouses have already fecal-oraled, and you probably have the same infections anyway. I have yet to send a patient for stool transplant, but my partner and the GI docs have done a handful with good results. Imagine, just imagine, my surprise when the local weekly, the Willamette Week, had an article on stool transplants being used by a naturopath as part of a $3,000 to $7,000 treatment, depending on whether you want to receive a home or go to a colon health retreat. I always retreat from colon health, I'll tell you. According to the Willamette Week, 
The practitioner is self-taught, and he obtains his stool from a 13-year-old male who was chosen because he had never had prior antibiotics. The kid is paid for his donations. I had a paper route as a kid, and, well, I'm not going to go there. Nope. According to the website, stool transplant is, quote, 90% effective in treating C. difficile infections and is 50 to 90% effective in significantly decreasing or eliminating symptoms of ulcerative colitis or IBS-C, end quote. The first number is legit. Stool transplant does indeed cure 90% of C. difficile infections. The second number at best, I can find a half dozen case reports for ulcerative colitis and a similar number for irritable bowel syndrome. For non-C. difficile disease, stool transplant is an intriguing idea, and given the interactions of the colonic microbiome and the gut, I would not dismiss the idea out of hand. How alterations in gut flora plays a role in irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, or even weight gain and weight loss are interesting concepts. The understanding of these interactions is in their infancy and may be a fruitful therapeutic option someday. I would be cautious since it is also reasonable that giving someone a stranger's poo could conceivably set them up for chronic inflammation with resultant stroke and heart attack, increase their risk for polio, a disease that could conceivably have a resurgence with decreases in vaccinations, or even put them at risk for long-term bowel cancer. Given the curious association between toxigenic bacteroides fragilis and colorectal cancer. So you give someone a stool transplant and you give them the wrong bacteroides and voila, 30 years later they have bowel cancer. There are likely to be subtleties in different microbiomes and in the individual's immune system's interactions with that microbiome that will alter the risk or benefit of a random stool transplant. At least with a kidney, when they transplant it, they try and match it to the recipient. I would not be surprised if a similar process would optimize the benefits of a stool transplant, although a complication of organ rejection is infection, and just how would you tell that in a stool transplant? While it is medicine that is accused of not treating the individual, it is often the scam practitioners who have a one-size-fits-all in their treatments with no consideration for the potential ramifications of their practice. In the practice of medicine, you learn early that no good deed ever goes unpunished. Everything has downsides. I would be strongly disinclined to recommend that a patient spend thousands of dollars based on an interesting idea. I would not have thought that someone could beat out Big Pharma and charge more than Fidoxamycin for a 10-day course for bowel therapy, but I evidently lack the requisite imagination. I also lack the insight to realize the importance of the colon for so many extracolonic processes, except I will admit that my health did improve markedly when I had my colon removed. Quote, Using fecal microbial transplantation for other health problems, including autoimmune disease, eczema, asthma, multiple sclerosis, and depression, and it detoxifies the body and improves the mood. End quote. Interesting. You can write your own comments here. To say there is even a biologic possibility for treating MS or depression with stool transplants requires a biology I was never taught and cannot imagine. The opportunity for placebo effects to predominate with stool transplants would be enormous, but there are those who, well, like that sort of thing. To each their own. 
and if autoimmune diseases, eczema, asthma, multiple sclerosis, and depression were the result of an inflammatory response, hence the term autoimmune disease, for example, one would think that giving people bacterial flora would be more likely to make things worse. Certainly, some diseases, such as MS, are worsened with infection. So taking someone with an immune inflammatory response and giving them something that increases the immune inflammatory response may not be such a good idea. I do not see why squirting another person's poo into your colon would not be, in the world of colonic detox, the equal of giving a toxin enema. If there's anyone with toxins in their colon, it would be a 13-year-old boy. I have seen what mine will eat if given half a chance. Quote, As for performing an unregulated procedure as unproven therapy, Davis says, quote, The FDA hasn't said not to, end quote. The FDA also hasn't said don't jump off a bridge, and damn, I'm getting old if I have to resort to that old trope. That's the way to choose a medical intervention for patient. If the powers that be don't say not to, then it is okay. That's the approach to life of my teenage children, and I have found it to be a reliable technique for them to learn from really stupid decisions. The practice of medicine is always in flux, and flux is an old term for diarrhea. And off-the-wall ideas of today are tomorrow's standard of care. For fecal transplant in some colonic diseases, it is an intervention that, outside of C. difficile, is unproven, although a promising idea. For diseases outside the colon, biologic plausibility makes stool transplant unlikely to have any benefit, with real potential downsides of exacerbating disease. Stool transplants are unlikely to be of widespread benefit. But when all you have to offer is crap, everything is a toilet. And that ends the 86th QuackCast. The references are over on science-based medicine. Don't forget to send me money, or if you don't want to send me money, send it to Ugandan Healthcare. Otherwise, go to moremark.squarespace.com for my growing multimedia empire. Talk to you next time. Bye.